welcome to Positively West Virginia, where each week we share positive stories about successful West Virginia businesses making a difference in our great state. Positively West Virginia is brought to you by the State Journal, WV News, United Bank, Mylin, and Interaction Media. Now, let's get down to business with your host, Jim Matuga. Coming to you from the Interaction Media Studio in Morgantown, West Virginia, welcome to Positively West Virginia. Every week, we talk with West Virginia business leaders and share their success stories with people just like you in West Virginia and across the country. For those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. And for those of you who are regulars, thank you all for supporting our podcast. We really appreciate it. Our goal with Positively West Virginia is to encourage our listeners with these inspirational business stories. There are many positive things happening in West Virginia business that most people don't ever hear about, and we're working to change that with this show so that people realize you don't have to leave West Virginia to find great career and business opportunities. They're right here in our state. All of our guests are people who are absolutely getting it done in business in West Virginia, and I'm convinced we can all learn a lot from their experiences and their stories. This week, however, we have a special edition lined up for you guys. Jack Hammersmith is Professor Emeritus of History at West Virginia University, and one of his specialty areas of study is U.S. history since the Civil War. Jack Hammersmith is highly regarded at WVU and indeed across the country. In fact, he received the John R. Williams Outstanding Teacher Award at WVU and the WVU Honors Program in 1998 and 2000. Jack is also an active member of the Rotary Club of Morgantown, which is celebrating their 100th year of service in the Morgantown area this year. Service organizations such as Rotary International play a pivotal and important role in our communities all across West Virginia, providing service, leadership, and fellowship in virtually every community in the state. Recently, and in honor of the 100th year celebration of the Rotary Club of Morgantown, Jack Hammersmith presented a brief talk about the history of Rotary and the Rotary Club of Morgantown at his weekly Rotary meeting. Uh, Upon hearing his outstanding presentation, our podcast producer, the illustrious Dylan Sheldon, and I agreed that it would be great to capture Jack's talk and record it to preserve the story and uh, publish it out on the podcast platforms that we do that, such as iTunes and Google Play and Spotify and, and others. Uh, Dylan, I, Dylan Sheldon and I are both Rotarians in the Rotary Club of Morgantown, so we're proud to bring this brief story to you today. So without further ado, we now bring you Jack Hammersmith. This year, the Rotary Club of Morgantown, West Virginia, celebrates 100 years of existence. As background for and in tribute to Rotary, both nationally and locally, this talk focuses on origins both in Chicago in 1905 and in Morgantown nearly two decades later. In one sense, Rotary International was born late. Its appearance came February 23, 1905, when lawyer Paul Harris and three friends met in a small office in downtown Chicago. They wanted to rekindle in the the turn-of-the-century city, the spirit of friendliness they had known in their hometowns. They chose the name Rotary to refer to the early practice of meeting in rotation at members' various places of business. I say it was born late 
because so many organizations had their origins in the 35 years between the end of the Civil War and the beginning of the 20th century. For whatever reason, this was the age of joining. For professional organizations, the American Bar Association, the American Medical Association, the American Historical Association. For patriotic societies, the Daughters of the American Revolution, the National Society of Colonial Dames, the Mayflower descendants. For others, not motivated by professional or patriotic reasons, but social ones, the Elks, the Shriners, Knights of Columbus, the Moose, and Eagles. Let me stop here before the list becomes overly long and totally tedious, but shortly after the turn of the century, in 1905, Rotary organized in Chicago, which may not have been a randomly chosen city for its origins. As Carl Sandburg would write a few years later of the city, it was laughing the stormy, husky, brawling laughter of youth, half-naked, sweating, proud to be hog butcher, tool maker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads and freight handler to the nation. Chicago was innovation, the first skyscraper in America. Chicago was merchandising, Montgomery Ward and Sears Roebuck located there, bringing to the nation, especially rural America, the fashions and merchandise of urban living. Chicago had been largely destroyed by the Great Chicago Fire of 1871 when 100,000 of 300,000 were displaced with 18,000 residences destroyed. It became, however, in the years when Paul Harris was growing up, the fastest-growing city in the world. A magnet for immigrants, the pole star for the great migration of African Americans coming out of the South the centerpiece for railroads crossing city, state, region, and nation. Chicago was no ordinary place. But if Paul Harris made his career and lived a majority of his life in Chicago, his earlier story typified the restless mobility and ceaseless opportunities of life in the United States, beginning more with frontier experiences than urban ones. Harris was born in Wisconsin three years after the Civil War ended, and because of lean economic times for the family, was sent with siblings to live in Vermont with his paternal grandparents. There he was educated at a private academy, from which he was soon expelled for undisclosed reasons. Later, at age 18, he entered the University of Vermont, from which he was also expelled this time for activities involving a secret society. Ultimately, he attended Princeton, but because of the death of his grandfather and the loss of financing, he would not complete his education there. At least, however, he wasn't expelled. Moving again, this time to Des Moines, Iowa, he read law in a law office and eventually graduated from the University of Iowa Law School in 1891. Rather than immediately hanging out his shingle, however, he followed several curious pathways, working odd jobs for several years as a salesman, a reporter, an actor, a cowboy, on a fruit farm, and on cattle ships that traveled to Europe. In 
Only in 1896 did the 28-year-old Harris move to Chicago, where he spent the rest of his life, except for summers in Michigan and occasional winters in Alabama. But if Rotary didn't evolve amidst what seemed a rush for so many Americans to join and organize themselves in the late 19th century, its appearance early in the 20th made equal sense. After all, the most common word as the calendar slipped into the 20th century was new. There was the new woman, the new Negro, the new nationalism, the new freedom. And so new groups, like the service-oriented Rotary, fit in perfectly. Remember, too, that the early years of the century saw an explosion of new ideas in what came to be called progressivism. It infused both major political parties, Republicans first, then Democrats. It aimed to humanize capitalism, to use science to improve society, to problem-solve rather than politically blame. And if one man epitomized its energy, ambition, idealism, and enthusiasm, as Harris did for Rotary, it was in politics the accidental president, Theodore Roosevelt, called by one contemporary a steam engine in pants. Indeed, T.R. was a phenomenon, though physically he stood at a modest 5'9 in his size 7 shoes. Yet somehow... He seemed larger than life. Graduating magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa from Harvard University, Roosevelt authored a four-volume history of the American West, which was considered definitive in his lifetime, and a history of the Naval War of 1812, which still retains much credibility today. He wrote several biographies and 14 volumes of history, natural history, literary criticism, autobiography, political philosophy, and military memoirs, in addition to countless articles and somewhere in the range of 75,000 letters. He normally read one to three books a day, averaging one a day while in the White House. Obviously, he was a speed reader. He could recite poetry in English, German, and French. He married two women. The first died as a result of childbirth and fathered six children. His motto for life, to work, to fight, and to breed. He was a boxing championship finalist, a Fifth Avenue socialite, a New York State assemblyman, a Dakota cowboy, a deputy sheriff, a president of the Little Missouri Stockmen's Association, U.S. Civil Service Commissioner, Police Commissioner of New York City, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Colonel of the Rough Riders, Governor of New York, Vice President, and finally President. And I've barely touched the surface, much less exhausted the subject. And in the year of Rotary's birth, 1905, Roosevelt, having been elected on his own the previous year, he had first become president when William McKinley was assassinated in 1901, was eagerly involved in international diplomacy. This was the man of whom it was said at a wedding, he wants to be the bride. At a funeral, the corpse. He was pure act. In 1905, he was 
dabbling in what today would be called summit diplomacy, sponsoring a peace conference to end a war between Russia and Japan. Dealing with major issues of diplomacy and minor ones of protocol, but etiquette and process can win or lose larger issues. One example, some agonized over the fact that the president, as convener and host of the conference, needed to remain scrupulously impartial, though in truth he was pro-Japanese. A banquet was to begin the meeting of the two delegations, but seating posed problems. Whoever sat on the host's right hand was by tradition the most honored guest. What to do? Flip a coin for the honor? Switch places midway through the meal? The choices were awkward and unsatisfactory. Roosevelt himself eventually fashioned a satisfactory compromise, a stand-up buffet with delegates gathered about a round table. But speaking of rounded objects reminds us of the rotary wheel, which symbolized, as I've said, the rotation of meetings from one place of business to another. And back to Paul Harris, let me note he was not elected president of the Chicago Rotary until 1907. He was the third to lead. Still, the organization grew consistently, if slowly, in its early years. Service was its objective, and the first major project in Chicago was the construction of public restrooms. But the ideals of the founders could not be contained in the Windy City. By 1910, at least 15 new clubs had begun in his far-flung places as San Francisco and New York City. Not only did the Rotary ideal spawn new clubs, but they inspired imitations. Kiwanis in 1915 and the Lions Clubs International in 1917. Rotary did not come to Morgantown, West Virginia for more than a dozen years after its first appearance in Chicago. Indeed, the first announcement of its existence was signaled in the New Dominion newspaper December the 10th, 1918. It emerged amidst triumph and tragedy. A mere four weeks earlier, the Great War had ended. Breaking out in the summer of 1914, the United States had remained outside the fighting of World War I under President Woodrow Wilson who, though a Democrat, not a Republican like Roosevelt, also possessed extraordinary and progressive credentials. The only Ph.D., for example, ever to occupy the Oval Office. Wilson had not been eager for war. Indeed, when the fighting began, he had refrained from joining, a decision which a majority of Americans seemed to approve. Popular culture reflected that fact. The most popular song in 1915 was... I didn't raise my boy to be a soldier. Politically, 1916 confirmed the same fact. Indeed, when Roosevelt won re-election in 1916, barely, his campaign slogan, He Kept Us Out of War, seemed one important factor, seemingly a statement of fact as much as a partisan boast. But neutrality, although possible in a short contest, became increasingly difficult as the war dragged on for 32 months, two full years and eight months, until the U.S. did join the effort in April 1917. 
And given our late entrance in the war, and the fact it was fought entirely on foreign soil, our casualties were relatively modest in the overall death of 10 million human beings. So bloody were the results that many predicted there would never be another such war. Of course, World War II, more an extension of World War I than not, saw five times the death and destruction of the Great War. If war was over in December of 1918 and the cheering still loud, there was another enemy confronting those seeking to bring Rotary to Morgantown, the deadly influenza. It would infect an estimated 500 million people worldwide and kill somewhere between 20 and 50 million, a broad estimate to say the least. Nearly 700,000 Americans were among its victims. Locally, this meant the canceling of university classes, the closing of schools, the nailing shut of public phone booths, the temporary suspension of church and synagogue services. Another casualty was the organizational meeting of Rotary set for mid-October. It had to be canceled because of the flu. Still, by December, the crisis had lessened, and S. Fuller Glasscock, local attorney and brother of a recent West Virginia governor, could head the meeting. He had visited a club in Fairmont a few months earlier and had been so impressed that he was determined to launch Rotary in Morgantown. The formal organizational meeting occurred at the Madeira Hotel December the 9th, with 70 initial members chosen. Although the university president was one of them, only six in all represented the university. Ten days later, on December the 19th, the first regular meeting was held at the Strand Dining Room. Forty-one members were present. The first service project undertaken centered on the need for road improvements in Monongahela County. From this general suggestion would come a committee to consider a $2 million bond issue to support good roads. Apparently, there were glitches aplenty, though, at the start of Rotary's existence in Morgantown. Charter members were picky. On January the 9th, only three weeks after the first regular meeting, five names were presented as possible members. The membership committee reported two of the five favorably. The club as a whole rejected both. Moreover, for a variety of reasons, several charter members soon departed. Among the reasons listed in Frederick Karspecken's little volume, Morgantown Rotary, the first 50 years, 1918-1968, one member objected to the cost of lunch being increased by 25 cents. Another, after less than a month, departed, lamenting he could not imagine men sitting at a table singing unless they were drunk. A third would not stay unless he were always addressed by his formal title. And a fourth left because, for the same fee, he could belong to a club with a swimming pool. The problem of membership, one faced early and intensely, resulted in modifying the original charter. Records indicate that at least half of the names proposed for membership were rejected. Partly, if not largely, this was because of the ease of rejection. 
First, any name had to receive a favorable vote from the three, soon five, who comprised the membership committee. Then the whole membership had to vote, and it took only five negative votes to torpedo a nomination. The individual might again be proposed, but only after six months. More than two years after its formation, the Morgantown Club approved new bylaws, only by a narrow margin and only after a heated discussion. Now a full 25% of the members had to vote no to block a new member. However, to appease those disliking what they considered an irresponsible lowering of standards and loosening of requirements, it now took only two negative membership committee votes to block a name from coming before the whole club. For any organization with a century of history, there is more to the story that can be told today, much more. The story of the first century of life is the Rotary Club of Morgantown, which survived and thrived through Depression, World War, Cold War, and much more. Once again, that was Jack Hammersmith, Professor Emeritus of History at West Virginia University and his brief history of the Rotary Club of Morgantown on this very special edition of Positively West Virginia. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Positively West Virginia is brought to you by the State Journal, WVNews.com, Interaction Media, United Bank, and Milan. As we continue on our journey to help share positive stories of companies and people doing amazing things all across the Mountain State, our hope is that we in some way inspire and motivate our audience by sharing these success stories in West Virginia. If you or someone you know would be a great guest on the show, drop us a line on our website, PositivelyWV.com. And of course, we appreciate all of your comments and encouragement as well. On behalf of our entire Positively West Virginia team, until next time, I'm your host, Jim Matuga. Stay positive, West Virginia.